You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Meal 4. Best. The new creation and hope. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come by and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labour for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. The Bible begins and ends with meals. Some of God's first words to humans are an invitation to eat. Uh, The first conflict in the Bible is over a forbidden fruit. Jesus' first miracle was in response to a catering crisis at a wedding, and his last meal is over a symbol-laden feast that explains his life and purpose. And the end is pictured as an incredible wedding banquet. And it's that final meal that we get to explore in more detail today. Uh, We've been on a massive ride uh, from a uh, luxurious, lavish, vegetarian diet in the Garden of Eden uh, to a forbidden and illicit meal uh, that caused the fall to a symbol-laden meal where Jesus explains his life and death, and now to the very final meal, a wedding banquet. We come to the final chapter now, from creation to the fall to redemption, and now to the new creation, which is pictured as this lavish and luxurious wedding banquet, where the nations and all people and cultures bring the very best of what they have and lay them at the feet of God and the slain lamb. And throughout the Bible, there are multiple invitations to come and join that feast. And so that's what we're going to explore today. As we've said before, I didn't really grow up in a Christian family. At least I didn't grow up having a personal faith in Jesus. But when I grew up, I never really needed convincing that I was a sinner either. It's not like I did heaps of bad things. But I never really lived my life for God and under him. I'd always lived my life separate to and apart from God as I was pursuing a profession in golf. And when confronted with the person of Jesus, I found him compelling and yet unnerving at the same time. Because I realised I didn't really want to make a decision. I wanted to remain agnostic, at least vaguely atheist at that, because... It was the least confrontational, both to me and to other people, decision to make. But over time, I realised that to not make a decision was just as big a decision as saying Jesus was Saviour and Lord. Because by not making a decision, I was saying that you can't really know who Jesus is. And if anything, that's a greater faith leap, I think, than saying Jesus is the one who came and died and lived among us. I didn't want to make a decision, but I realised that not by not making one, that was a bigger step, if not bigger, 
than putting trust in Jesus myself. And whichever way I cut it, I realized that I actually had to have an opinion and make a decision on who I thought Jesus was. And being confronted with him time and time again, as I looked at the evidence for myself and tried to figure out who he was, I was convinced beyond reasonable doubt that Jesus really lived on this earth and that he really died and that he really was who he said he was. And so meeting him by reading about his life, by looking at what the Bible had to say about him, I changed my mind and I made a decision. Jesus not only lived and died on this earth, but he was God's king. He was Lord and he was my savior for my sin. What would life look like after that? Part one, heaven. Heaven is often misconceived as a place you go to when you die. It's often pictured as a place on white puffy clouds with angels in white togas playing harps and eating Philadelphia cream cheese. And that's just not the least bit scary for me, not only because I'm a little bit lactose intolerant, but also because that place just seems so lame. Uh, George Bernard Shaw, the famous playwright, aptly sums it up when he says, heaven is often pictured as a place so miserable, so dull, a place so inane, so useless, that no one has dared to write a whole day in heaven. And yet plenty have described a whole day by the seaside. Sometimes you might have heard heaven described as the best thing you've possibly experienced on infinite loop, like a never-ending church service. Gosh, no. Or the best thing you've ever experienced on infinite loop. Surely that'll get boring. Heaven at best is kind of like a Volvo. It's sensible, it's safe, but it's ugly. If heaven is the end, is living for Jesus really worth it? Is heaven really a worthwhile end to strive to? The last book of the Bible called Revelation, uh, John, who's, who's one of the apostles of Jesus, uh, writes about the end like this, uh, more like an artist than, than a scientist. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit every month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. The Bible begins with a garden. And the Bible ends with a garden. But this garden is so much better than the first. Because it's not just a garden. It's a garden city. 
And there's not just fruitful trees, but there's trees giving fruit every month with 12 different kinds. And the tree of life is there. Uh, but it's not just giving life, it's healing the nation somehow. The new creation, the garden should look eerily similar to the first. Because it's not just the garden of creation. It's this earth, but better. And what are we doing in that? Are we just lying around, having siestas, always having midday naps, just watching Netflix and chill? Actually, the last sentence of, that I just read says that they will reign forever and ever. Shouldn't that be he, though? Kind of like Jesus and God. But no, it says they will reign forever and ever. They, because we being God's image bearers, are now restored for our rightful place and reigning. See, originally in Mill 1, we said that we were made to be God's image bearers so that people would look at us and go, wow, if that's a God that they worship, that's a way that they reign. Their God must be incredible. And now we're restored to that rightful place. We're reigning and not reigning in such a way as to disregard our God. But this time we are God's argument for the existence of God. And we reign in such a way that points everyone to the glory and the honour and the love and character of our God. The future from the Bible is distinctly our world. But it's not just our world. It's our world redeemed. It's our world made better. It's our world healed. Because evil, sin, sadness and sorrow, all gone. The old is gone, the new has come. Not only is our relationship with God being restored, it's now perfect because sin is not just forgiven, it's now removed. Our relationships with one another are now not just repaired, but they're perfect because all of our breakdowns and sin has been taken away. And the world which we live in is now redeemed and restored. Because not only has sin as power been dethroned, but it's now completely disarmed and taken away. As one writer said, everything bad will become untrue. And it will be all the more glorious because of it. It would be like running and not losing breath. It would be like running and getting faster and faster as you go. Because the Christian hope isn't destruction. It's fulfillment. It's this made right. It's this made better. It's this being made what it always meant to be. It's not on clouds, it's not with angels and tokers, it's distinctly physical and this-worldly. It's this world redeemed. Put it this way, it's not about destruction, it's about fulfilment.
We're not like Hydra, we're not like Thanos. We're not blowing down the old world to start anew. Jesus has done something far more incredible than that. He has redeemed and resurrected and restored that what was old, taken out its sin and made it glorious in its time. That's the same for us as well. Because we're not destroyed to start again. We too are restored and redeemed and resurrected. It won't be a day where we look at one another and go, who are you? But it will be a day where we look at one another and go, wow. I always knew that that was inside you. The Christian hope is not an end, but a beginning. It's kind of like Christmas. Kids are in eager anticipation of opening up their presents. And when Christmas Day comes, the waiting ends. But a new beginning starts because when they open up their presents, when the Christmas Day comes to an end, a new world of play and imagination and excitement now comes to them. In the same way, the Christian hope is not an end but a beginning. It's the end of a long period of waiting, but it is the beginning of us restored and redeemed of this new world, resurrected and made better and made what it ought to be in the first place. So what about suffering? When we go through suffering and and times of great difficulty, one of the questions that we typically ask is, why? Sometimes we ask that question to God, sometimes we don't. Why is this happening? Why, God, are you letting me go through this? Why, what did I do to deserve this? But the question that Christians ought to ask in suffering is not why, but How long? And when Christians ask that question and see their God, the answer is always, it's acute. When they see their suffering and when they see their God, they know that the two cannot coexist forever. Soon God will call evil to account. He will weigh up all things good and all things bad and get rid of everything that's not meant to be there. The final picture isn't God getting out his PowerPoint presentation and showing you why certain things must have happened so that this will work out for this end and cause this thing. Now, the final image is of God wiping away every tear, of healing all the war wounds that we have. The final promise is for God to heal all our scars. And the words, never again. Never again. And in that light, God's judgment is incredibly good news. Nothing will be unseen or truth will be laid out for everyone to see. God, with justice, will weigh and evaluate and judge truly all things that are good and get rid of everything that's evil. Everyone will be held to account. If you've been really wronged before, 
if you still have scars from that, particularly from Christians or from the church, the idea of God's judgment where he will weigh everything and see everything for what it is, that is incredibly good news. Because it means that nothing will be swept under the carpet. Everything will be given what it deserves. But the scary thing about that is that we know we're not perfect. We know we're also part of the problem as much as we try to be part of the solution. And so if God will one day weigh all things with truth and justice, then he know that we will be weighed as well. We will be held to account. And the Bible is clear, no one is worthy to stand on their own. And when we meet God, when he judges all things, what will we say? Christians say, I know I'm not worthy of you, God, but forgive me because of Jesus. The new creation is ultimately not about us, but God and the slain lamb are at the center. And to be a Christian means you have to be cool with that. You have to be cool with the idea that it's not us at the center of the universe, but it's God. Let me read to you more from the book of Revelation. This is chapter 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In the new creation, God and Jesus will be at the very centre. And the nations, all of the nations and cultures will be bringing their best in glory and worship of him. That's why in this meal, in the fourth meal, we bring the very best of a plate that we have to share at home. We are mimicking that of where the nations bring their very best to Jesus, so we too are bringing our very best to this last meal to share. To be a Christian and to be in the new creation isn't about endlessly forgetting other people and fulfilling our desires and purposes and aims and pleasures. No, for, to forget about other people and just to concentrate on ourselves, that's not heaven. That's hell. Rather, the glorious new creation, God and Jesus are at the center because of all they've done. Part two, now and then. So what does this all mean for us now? Let me read to you another part of the Bible in a letter to the Corinthians. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Living in hope of the new creation, 
means that I'll live this life differently. It means that I won't live life to dominate over other people, but I will serve others because Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. It means when I suffer, I'll have hope because my aim isn't for my best life now, but it's placed in an eternal future, a life beyond this world, a hope beyond my current situation. It means that in suffering, I have someone to talk to and pray with because Jesus, my King, is also with me through his spirit. It means that my life won't be about myself or my aims or my purposes or my glory, but it will be about honoring the God who loves me and the Lamb who saved me. It means my life is not the product of random molecules colliding with one another, but it means that my life now, its purpose and its mission was always to glorify the God who loves me and the slain lamb who saved me. It means in the face of injustice, I will not stand there and be silent. And I can also be calm under it because I have a God who will judge and see and evaluate all things. It means in the face of things which scare me, I can be bold and courageous because I have the king of the universe on my side. And in the end, nothing can stop the new creation which I am hoping in. And ultimately, it meant a life of hope. Uh, in the passage that we just read, Paul uses the idea and the image of first fruits. First fruits comes from that agricultural world of farming. Uh, but in that time and place, farming wasn't for other people. Farming was also for yourself and your family. The time before the first fruits, that is winter, was often a precarious time. It was a time where you would have to often ration the foods that you had to make sure it lasted the winter so that you and your family could survive. And so when you looked out onto your crops and you looked out amongst the trees and when you saw the first fruits, the first fruit of the harvest, that was an incredible moment of celebration. Why? Uh, not because of the first fruit itself. Uh, that couldn't feed your family. But because it was a sign of the harvest to come. And in the same way, Jesus is a sign of the new creation to come. In Jesus, we see our future. Spring is here. The first fruits has come. We see and we know and we experience what is to come. A force has been unleashed on this world that nothing can stop. Part three, following Jesus. We're now at the end of our four meals. Uh, we've gone from that vegetarian feast in meal one uh, to the enticing KFC and yet steep drop off of dissatisfaction in meal two. But we've gone through the redemption feast of Passover, seeing Jesus our slain lamb in meal three. And we've ended at meal four, where we've bought our best to share amongst the people with us. 
like how the glory of the nations come to God and the slain lamb and give him all of our praise. So what now? How about I suggest a few things? The first thing, I think, is to remain curious. Uh, whatever stage of faith or journey that you're on, I think to remain curious is always really good advice. Uh, if God is true, if Jesus really is real, then he can handle all the questions that we have. Nothing should be too small for him. Keep on asking and asking and asking away. Question your questions, question your doubts. Why are we not making decisions? Why are we not wanting to come up with answers? I think at whatever stage of faith that we're at, that is always good advice to remain curious. The second thing is, you might be now interested in Jesus or want to know more about him. Can I advise to you, can I suggest, now would be a great time to read through an account of Jesus' life. Uh, the, the shortest one is the Gospel according to Mark. And I reckon you could probably knock that off with someone in about five sessions over five weeks. I think it's a great opportunity for you to read about Jesus' life, his heart, his mission and his purpose, now that you understand the big storyline of the entire Bible. If you're not in that camp, that's totally okay. If you feel like you're done with this and you've got more than enough information, thanks for participating. We'd love to hear your feedback. We'd love to hear how you went. The third thing I want to say is maybe you've decided to follow Jesus. And the question is, well, what would that look like? Well, in the Bible's language, it means to repent and to have faith. It means to repent. It means to turn your life around for whichever purpose you are heading towards and pointing it towards Jesus. Where my life needs to turn away from golf to the sun, in the same way we turn away from whatever else that we were striving for and making Jesus and his God our driving purpose and mission of our life. And to have faith means to trust, or better yet, entrust ourselves to Jesus. It means that I'll entrust to him my whole life as my saviour and the direction of it as my Lord. Now, to have faith and repent to having doubt, I guess, is always on a spectrum. But the two, faith and doubt, can always coexist. Because in the same way, we still trust a chair will hold us before we sit in it. It's the same way that we can still trust Jesus, even with the questions and doubts that we still have. These are some of the last words of the Bible. Come and let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. To be a Christian really means one thing. And it's to come to God knowing your need. It's to come knowing you're thirsty, knowing that you're hungry. And if you are those things and you come to God, he has got a seat for you at his own table, at the lavish wedding banquet of the slain lamb. So where will you eat? Where will you sit? Do you know? your need. If you do, there's a seat awaiting for you.